can you hear me well? Do you want me to put the um, these on? No, I can hear you fine. Yeah. Yeah, Perfect. and uh, yeah. I believe we should be live now. I think, hopefully. <laughs> yes, we are live. Wonderful. Okay, excellent. Let me just share this on Twitter and then uh, to say we're live, and then we'll get going. Um, Wonderful. So, um, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today I am here with Dr. Paolo Garbardo, who is a sociologist and political analyst at King's College London and author of The Great Reset. Uh, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you doing? Yeah, great. Great to have you with me. Um, it's yeah. I know we we tried to talk earlier in the year, um, and we we couldn't quite get the schedules right. Um, I was only in London very briefly, so. But it's a, it's a pleasure to be able to to chat to you here, and you're also the author of the Great Recoil, um, which I'm sure we will get onto in in a little bit. But to start um, with my absolute one hundred percent favorite topic in the entire world, GameStop. <laughs> I've got my nice to the moon sign in the background. You know, got to, got to big it up. But um, so. Do you believe that, that GameStop is a new type of revolution or is this just uh, folks like myself and other internet commentators hyping it beyond belief? I think it is the manifestation of a broader trend of these I mean, online crowds that we have been seeing in action for several years now, both in uh, positive and negative ways. I mean, ranging from like 2011, Occupy Wall Street, people using Twitter, to gather people online and then do action offline, to the populist right from Pistas, uh, Gamergate, and all the confrontations happening online, people trolling, big flames, big attacks, playing an important role in the propaganda machine of, of the right. And now we have these phenomena that are, I mean, these online trading wars. I mean, are really interesting because action is happening there, right? It's online action, but it's still a form of action. And that is why this term online crowds actually sticks because they resemble in some ways the crowds of yore, crowds that were coming together, I mean, obviously coming together in public space, in, in squares, streets, street corners, whatever, and then using their power of numbers, their mass power that is quantitative, is based on how many people you have, by focusing all on the same pressure point, as it were. In the case of GameStop, it's really kind of gaming the financial world and demonstrating how it is already gamed, how it is already a war that is controlled by few players who actually are constantly involved in this speculative uh, game and showing that also the small guy, in this case, kind of the online trader, what once upon a time would have been called a retail trader. Mm -hmm. it, these people unite their forces in a crowd. They suddenly are as strong as the big sharks of Wall Street uh, because of this scaling up affordance of the internet and of social media. The ability in which social media can aggregate many individuals, bring them together very rapidly at very little cost, 
and engage them in collective action that obviously allows people to do things that none of them would be able to do individually. Mm. I think you've picked up on something really important there. It's the, like two things, actually. First, that the this is like action happening that is not just, it's not just like a bunch of people discussing things in mm. an echo chamber online and then nothing happens. It's not like, because, um, so in, in the book I've talked, um, which I'm still writing, but I've talked uh, about how there's been comparisons made to, to like QAnon and they're calling this like QAnon for finance. And and I feel like the, the difference here is that it's, there's, there's like quantifiable effects happening in the real world from what's going on in the financial world, basically. And uh, do you think this is the first example of, of this happening on such a large scale or would you perhaps go back the whole way to like the Arab Spring when, when Twitter was being used? I mean, I, I think really the, the model in a way is anonymous, is hacking, mass hacking, right? When people, you remember like in the, in the noughties and early 2010s, especially, uh, people were asked to like download software and uh, then attack a certain target uh, or people were using zombie networks of computers to do much the same thing. So in a way, that was the first time that you could see that people coming together and acting together could do things that were not just communication as we normally understand it, and this idea of the internet is a space for convos, for conversations, people exchanging views, people saying things, but that it was something, again, about action. Then I'd say more generally, also communication is always action in, in a sense that, for example, shit storms happening online, uh, people rushing or piling on the accounts of Manchin and cinema I mean, all these forms of activism that have been often described as collectivism, they also are consequential. They also have an ultimate effect. It is an effect that is very difficult to measure because often it's an effect that is more kind of psychological than, than material. But psychological phenomena ultimately have a material precipitation. I mean, in social movements, like raising awareness is usually the first step towards actually bringing people together, assembling people together. It is obviously in the case of GameStop, this link between what people do online and things happening in the real world, though it is still a digital world because the stock exchange world these days, right? It is eminently virtual, eminently digital, but it's really, is extremely clear this link, right, between what people do and then the fact it has, and how the two things actually feed into one another, uh, creating this sort of spiral of upward spiral of enthusiasm, where people, by seeing that what they're doing actually works, obviously get far more emboldened, and other people are dragged into the spiral, dragging into the tribe, and it creates a sort of contagious effect, which again, I mean, these phenomena are very similar to what happens in a crowd. That is why actually the term online crowd sticks because very much like a crowd, a contentious crowd works in the same ways. 
people start doing things, but for example, pushing against the police line. If they are succeeding, some bystanders may get enthused and mimic them. They may join the crowd. Uh, people start doing things that they would never do alone uh, because they are afraid of doing things alone. Um, so it's almost like a video game, but a real life video game in a way, right? In the sense that you're kind of, you're shooting against the target and the target falls and you say, wow, I mean, I've done something. Which is this gulf between uh, decision and, and action, but also between action and results, which often in real life is extremely frustrating. Like, for academics, for example, like academics like me, like we write papers, then we send the paper to a journal and then three months after, uh, finally, the journal comes back, usually says, no, we don't want it. And that is extremely frustrating and actually discouraging. While to the contrary, what happens in online trading wars such as GameStop is uh, that you are basically in real time seeing the effects of what you're doing and other people are doing. And that obviously creates uh, an enthusiasm, much like a kid or whatever is playing with a car and, and a remote controller and, and the car moves. And you actually see things that are working and that are bold and speed. I think more generally, this, is, this applies to many political phenomena these days, right? Uh, also to uh, big groups, big shitstorm, big, big trolling attacks, where people are seen immediately that they're actually doing something. That it's not just chatting. That it has what they're doing as results. Mm. So basically what you're saying is that uh, what we've seen in, in the real world happening as a result of the actions of, of what's happened within Wall Street bets to begin with then in, in January and then beyond that um, with, uh, yeah, there's been a whole, a whole uh, sort of, succession of subreddits as we've we've jumped like the community has jumped from the next one to the next one to the next one as uh, as it's appeared at least to the community that one has become compromised or the moderators of each one but you're saying that perhaps the reason that people are still so heavily invested psychologically mm -hmm. in this is because they've seen real world effects from it and they've seen things actually like happen because of the, because of the things that they have done that it's the, it's that they've actually seen something happen and therefore they're like, wow, okay, we can actually affect it. And, and that like mm -hmm. makes them more committed to the cause as such. I, I think there is something to it that speaks to our almost primordial instincts that are often frustrated in contemporary society because we are quintessentially collective creatures and social creatures. Uh, we were part of herds until uh, uh, a few thousand years ago. Mm. Right? I mean, most of our lives like, in a, from an evolutionary perspective was as part of herds, was as part of groups. And there is an excitement to being part of a group that actually no individual achievement uh, can compare to. So when people, people are yearning for these occasions to do things together, which in contemporary society, more so because of pandemic restrictions are very uh, hard to find these days. Mm. 
traditional forms of action of coming together, contentious gatherings, as the history of social movements, uh, Charles Steely would call them. So when people, whenever people see an opportunity for that, they just jump on that en masse. I mean, obviously people who are part of the broader community, in this case, we're talking about online traders. So it already is a sort of specific class, people with some play money who can risk that and who are oriented towards that. But it really speaks to an imbalance between supply and demand in a way, in, in collective action, in the sense that I really think these days there's so much demand that is not satisfied because there's so very few occasions where people can uh, get this almost tribal experience, right, of, of becoming part of something bigger than themselves. And it's something that is contagious uh, to the point almost of being addictive once you become part of these groups and once you see that you're doing things together. Mm, yeah, that's 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 really that's that's quite a real real talk. I mean, the so they've had Reddit have been releasing like their uh, like for all their users for this year, um, in in a similar way to Spotify do actually, like what the what the top subreddits were and how much time you spent on them. And uh, I saw there was a thread on Twitter where people were screenshotting like how long they'd spent on on the, the GameStop related subreddits. And, and some of them were like hundreds and hundreds of hours of this year. Um, mm. And like mine included. So I, I'm like, I'm guilty as well. <laughs> I mean, mine wasn't anywhere yeah. near as, as high as some people. So, um, but this, this idea actually that you mentioned there about, about demand for collective action and a lack of supply of it is, mm-hmm. is so real. I mean, I think, and maybe you can, you can speak a little bit about this, but one thing that struck me about the movement is that there it maybe it began with a lot of sort of professional traders but very quickly it became it's become clear to me at least that this is not a group of people who own other stocks like that this they own one stock and that's gamestop maybe um like the 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 movie stock but like it's for most people is just gamestop that's all they have and and i think that that's that's very real actually what you're talking about is that they have become increasingly frustrated at our inability for at the inability of the the people as such to make change in our society um so to to sort of yeah, break rank and bring in your book here. Um, do you think this is as a result of the kind of neoliberal system that has built up over the past 40 years? Do you think that that itself is is hindering people's ability to feel like they have an impact upon their their world or their country or their local community or, or any of these things? Yes, I think that GameStop is a very good uh, metaphor of many things that are wrong with neoliberalism. First and foremost, financialization. And the curious thing about choosing GameStop as as a stock is because it is kind of a beloved uh, shop chain that many gamers go to. And it's something that is very valuable for people. It's something that actually exists in reality. It is kind of brick and mortar. It is a shop that people go to is a reference point in the community. It is a gathering point in real life. And then you see how in the stock market that doesn't matter at all. Like all that matters is the ability to kind of like make money out of it, often really kind of betting against 
that in, in ways that are completely cruel, but also ultimately in a way economically irrational, that don't seem to have economic rationality. And you see how these talks have actually no relation to, to reality. In a way, the GameStop saga is precisely a sort of multiplication of that in the sense that the stock skyrockets, but because people want it to go up, right? Not because this is a reflection of economic performance. Much like people are betting against that stock, wanted it to go down, not because of, or only because of economic fundamentals behind it, but because they wanted to make money out of that by betting against that. Second, there is also a problem with neoliberalism in the way in which it has created dislocation in so many aspects of our lives. What I mean by that, it has created a sense of lack of control First and foremost, because of the steam complexity of society and the distance that is created between ourselves and, and the economy, both as producers and as consumers. Capitalism has always been about alienation, namely uh, a sense of estrangement from what we do, because literally what we produce is taken away from us, like turning to money. And the same goes with consumption. But under neoliberalism, this has been just magnified to the point where like, when we consume things that come not from far only, but from far, far, far away, uh, whatever, uh, berries from Peru or uh, whatever, car parts from different countries with an extreme complexity where each and every small component comes from elsewhere, it means that it is a system that is impossible really to, to understand even, and more so to, to capture politically and to manage politically. I mean, partly it is designed precisely to be like that. So that is all the system of uh, tax savings, like moving money away so that you cannot find it, or all the system of externalization, Exporting the working class to, to, to other places, meaning that you cannot really, uh, the, the, the workers cannot protest because production is moved to countries with uh, uh, less union rights, for example, or with less traditional militancy. So there's been this uh, externalization that, that has been one of the keywords of neoliberalism and has been precisely a process of outsourcing, outcontracting, offshoring constantly trying to basically displace uh, what, what was here to somewhere else, either literally, physically, or uh, functionally, with the ultimate aim to make it impossible for people to control it and therefore to democratically determine it. So I think phenomena like GameStop are in a way an attempt to take revenge against that. Mm not to solve it because it is also impossible for them to solve it, but at least to say, no, this is, this, this is not okay. We don't want that. Actually, we, we're going to troll you back. It is a troll trolling back. Trolling back against people who have been trolling us like all the time, like the financial class, and uh, therefore deserve uh, their due. 
that's a beautiful way to put it. We're trolling the financial <laughs> class. That is that. That's I. I couldn't have put it better. I'm going to steal that for the book. Um, <laughs> Over it. Yeah. The um, the one thing I will actually say is that the 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 company itself uh, was, yeah, maybe not going under, but as you, as you say, it was like the 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 hedge funds that were involved were trying to like bankrupt the company for profit, not because they thought it wasn't valuable. Uh, but the the new chairman of the board, Ryan Cohen, who's come in, has actually taken all of this hype and success and the engaged community and been able to transform the company in a way that I'm not sure anyone would have predicted last year. Uh, it's mm-hmm. it's it's amazing. Like they they've they cleared all their debt. They're hiring umpteen different like Amazon, Google, like ex executives. They're they're planning like a huge like metaverse NFT section that they're they're currently building for for what you know we don't know but yeah they've been able mm-hmm. to do this. But I wanted to ask you here actually when you you talked about this idea of our lack of control of and this frustration at lack of control being a result of the the complexity of of our of our system at the minute. And I, I basically wanted to, to see if, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical that that's a hundred percent the case. I guess that I, I'm, I'm not sure that complexity has to mean people having no control. I, I, I guess my, mm-hmm. my, my feeling is that, that there is, that we've like separated the, the democratic process. So we have the vote. We vote for for politicians Mm -hmm. but then our influence upon them is has been sort of severed because they are only interested in taking money from the the big corporations who will then who will continue to fill their pockets and allow them to buy ad revenue or or sorry ad ad space like say previously it would have been like tv ads in america or here it would have been like print advertising and and things like that but now like social media as as i wrote wrote in my first book has has allowed them to to campaign from behind a computer screen and so Mm -hmm. they have no real need for say like a mass membership in the way they would have in the past so so you know, politics mm-hmm. used to be kind of on the doorstep. It would have been something that people, you, you needed a big campaign team to go out and knock on doors and canvas and convince people to vote for you. And now you can sit behind a laptop and, you know, put out very misleading and divisive adverts that are micro-targeted to whoever you want. And and I guess mm-hmm. I, I have this feeling that if we could sever that link and and, and attempt to, to make politicians more accountable to people, the, the, the complexity wouldn't, be the factor limiting us I, I, maybe maybe i'm wrong like what do you think of, of of that when i was talking about complexity i was referring mostly to kind of the international division of labor i mean in a sense of how hyper specialized capitalism has become and how global trade is not really global trade anymore but it's like more a global system of production so what that means is that there is not such a thing as autonomy or, or self-reliance to speak of, not even a minimum of that. Uh, I mean, international trade is fine with having things that you cannot produce locally. And in the US, you want to eat perhaps burrata from Italy or some cheese, and people want to get whatever, electronics from the US. But when it moves beyond these elements of necessity, 
it becomes quite dangerous in engendering dependency, reciprocal dependency, and in turning countries into monocultures. A lot of South America being big mine for extraction, like of primary resources, uh, and that obstacle in the development of actually of manufacturing and more advanced activities, because it's really an addictive process, is the famous Dutch illness, like by focusing so much on the primary sector, ultimately make, make it impossible for you to do anything else. Or Italy becoming, which some years ago was quite an advanced economy in the 80s, uh, it even surpassed France, uh, Britain, and for a short time France, with even computer producers, and now being relegated down the value chain, becoming basically uh, a big tourism country only, and, and, and uh, so-called food, as Italians themselves put it in English, country, like, to make it more hipstery. Mm-hmm. And, um, which is bad. I mean, for example, what that means that Italians like me at to migrate elsewhere because they cannot get jobs in, for example, in research or engineering because the country doesn't do that anymore. And conversely, people from other countries who are working in other sectors that they cannot take a degree, whatever in biology or other things that are not locally produced and they need to move elsewhere. So the system has become so hyper-specialized that it engenders all these imbalances. It forces people to move from a place to the other it forces people uh, to, uh, in a way, really decide between uh, whatever, living the life they would like to live and finding a job that is decent for them. So there are many things about, about our world. That, I mean, and then if you look at companies, how they are structured and all these weird ways mm-hmm. and all these stupid tricks and Chinese boxes system, it's all constructed to create opacity. Right? It's not that it is opaque because whatever, we are not intelligent enough to grasp it, is because it is designed to be opaque with all these fake companies and fake group of companies and, and so on and so forth. Because the more opaque it is, obviously, the more difficult it is for citizens to understand it and ultimately to exert some form of monitoring activity and, and control activity on that. Mm. So you're saying that, yeah, the, the opacity is the point then, basically. So, so is that, mm. is, do you see, do you see there being like a, a an extreme contrast then with, with how this old system has been set up and how the internet functions? Because the, the internet is, is essentially, in my mind, at least it's, it's like the, the ultimate transparency tool when it's when it's used correctly. Um, I mean, we're, we're as a as a, a species, we're still basically figuring how what it is. Um, I don't think we have a grasp on it yet. But do you like do do you think that's the reason that there is such a, a move now to try and amongst sort of larger corporations and, and media conglomerates to try to have like some sort of control over the internet is because it's it's completely antithetical to that trans to that opacity that that they've built in their other systems i mean i'd say that always capitalism thrives on information of different kinds i mean the stock exchange is actually an example of that so it it also thrives on certain forms of, of transparency yet it also has so much secretiveness and also governments obviously have that which is a key component of power, 
I mean, power goes with secrets, right? I mean, that is why leaders are called secretaries. Hmm. <laughs> Literally are the people who are charged with keeping the secrets. Because if you have no secret, you also have no strategy. If you are telling your adversary your moves, your adversary will simply prepare for them right, and anticipate them. Uh, so in that, the internet is both as huge potential in terms of creating trust that is based on transparency, right, because trust is premised on being reassured that what people are telling you actually is what they're thinking. And online, if anything, there is uh, this, this inhibition when we are saying everything we think, perhaps also things that we shouldn't say. Like, as, as someone as someone was putting it on, on Twitter the other day, this is for the group message. Like, you know, there are things that are not for open conversation, for example, she was making a case of screenshotting uh, weird uh, Tinder profiles, right? Or <laughs> online dating apps profile. And she was saying that it is quite humiliating because perhaps someone can recognize uh, that person. Like, it is a bit cruel, right? It's a bit mean to expose people like that. And actually, and she was suggesting that there is something that, right, you can joke on, but it's better to do it in a smaller circle of friends, like your family group or your friends group or your whatever, like be it on WhatsApp, on Telegram, Signal, whatever is your favorite instant messaging. So actually what that tells you is that also the internet as is not completely public, right? it's not completely transparent. Mm. Actually, it has this sort of nested structure where there are some more private rooms, right? as you already add in the old chats like that all these like me like still remember from the early internet right uh, where you could basically create a separate chat for people to to discuss things yeah so i mean in a way also the internet has this element of, of, of opacity but definitely it's more the kind of transparency element the one that is preponderant mm. yeah do you think do you think the internet can be governed like, do you mm -hmm. think it's do you think it's actually possible, and do you think it should be? Actually, is probably the better question. I, mean, I think the internet has always been covered. We had a bit this impression, partly illusion, that it was this eminently global architecture, which meant for people when people were saying that it meant that it was beyond the control of of nation states. Governments could not control the internet. Governments could not shut down the internet. Then 2011 comes the Egyptian revolution. And the day after the big protest on the 26th of January 2011, the Egyptian government literally shuts down the local internet by shutting down electricity to the most central telephone exchange in the country. So they literally didn't even kind of disconnect cables. They, they shut down the electricity supply, uh, which meant that basically, except for one internet provider in the country that happened to be the provider of the stock exchange, <laughs> all the rest <laughs> of the internet infrastructure was completely 
silent. I mean, the, the, when you look at the internet traffic gra- uh, data from those days, it's, it's, it's shocking. Actually, it didn't work out too well. The kill switch, as it was described, turned more into a suicide switch because people's curiosity or people's concern about their friends meant that the people who were sitting on the fence but had acquaintances, friends, relatives in the squares, ultimately were somehow pushed to the squares because they had no more sitting on the fence option. They couldn't stay at home and see what was going on and whatever. Solidarity people, do, do what you're doing, continue doing that. They actually had to go to the streets, even if it was just to, to find their friends, also because mobile phones were not working. So people out of concern went to the squares to find what was happening with their friends and relatives. And they ended up actually uh, adding to the crowd. So that is an example. But that is an example of something that is more general in a sense that, that, that the internet is based on national infrastructure that is controlled by national states. And it's not just the case, whatever, of China, Iran, uh, countries that are sometimes cited as an example of internet authoritarianism, it is the case everywhere. Um, somehow, for, for a long time, we had this impression that it was global because the United States obviously was where the internet originated and where much of this infrastructure was developed and technology was developed and also governance was developed. At some point, it was so hegemonic that it could have the luxury of presenting itself as uh, a champion of globalization and, and uh, to basically allow the internet to somehow develop freely. Mm. But it was never truly the case. So this is the question of, can it be governed? Yes, because it has, in a way, always been governed, though somehow can it kind of slip out of the hands of the controller, as it were. I mean, should it be governed? Um, what would you say? I mean, I think that we all prize the freedom of the internet. Now there is an attempt to push back on that uh, legislation in the UK mm-hmm. being tabled, the UK online safety bill that wants to curb uh, freedom, especially on Twitter, because people, politicians are obsessed about Twitter. They, they, it's the only social media they know. And they're <laughs> even talking, yeah, in, so sometimes even in, in ludicrous ways, in ludicrous ways, to the point that, Miliband campaign, Miliband's campaign, the labor leader in 2015, he spent all his online advertising budget on Twitter. No way. Not the whole thing. Which really? is ridiculous because, I mean, nobody watches ads on Twitter. Plus, Twitter is already super polarized. It's not a place where you can win anyone. Well, the sensible thing would have been to spend it on Facebook, right? where people have more kind of personal contacts or elsewhere, whatever, Instagram. But so what I was talking about is the UK online safety bill currently uh, tabled in the commons. Uh, I think it is uh, uh, due to be uh, finally discussed and voted on in April. And it is an extremely draconian legislation. I mean, basically, they want to criminalize uh, uh, rush people, pylons, like Twitter pylons, like in a sense, like people going to Manchin's account. I mean, if you I always go. Uh, when I'm on Twitter, uh, almost every day I, I check 
Joe Manchin's Twitter account and Christian uh, Cinema <laughs> why, Twitter why, account. Why Joe Manchin specifically? Because I, I can I can kind of understand, but like I mean, the two big obstructionists of the whatever the Biden agenda. But what is really interesting about their accounts is that whenever they tweet on anything, basically, they'll have hundred likes and then whatever five hundred, seven hundred comments, all of them negative, like people telling whatever Jumanchin, you're a hypocrite because you're saying you're doing things for the country. Why are you not voting the Build Back Better deal? Yeah. And these are very interesting events or these very interesting shitstorms. And that's how technically they're called. <laughs> and um, because they show how the sort of added value of social media for democracy is really seeing this feedback from people, from ordinary people. And you can immediately kind of get a sense of whether a politician, a policy, a declaration is popular or not. You can clearly see that. Clearly, politicians don't like that. Like, they like tweeting. They love tweeting. <laughs> they love being retweeted. <laughs> they don't like getting comments. Because mostly, actually, if there's more comments than likes, they tend to be negative comments. I mean, the discussion really accelerates when there is a negative element to that. But from that to criminalizing the um, pylons and equating them basically with harassment, because that, that is basically the argument, is extremely dangerous and also speaks to more general tightening, right? Community guidelines, uh, fake profiles. Um, Do you mind if so I just I think, stop you there for one second? We can, yes, we can go back yes. to this, but how, have you read like the language in which they're attempting to like define this sort of pylon thing like is it a certain number of comments within a certain length of time or because that seems like a really difficult thing to define like even if you wanted yes. to try and do it i mean it is very slippery now there's drafts like of legislation but there's already jurists legal experts who have been looking into that and really saying that it's, it's extremely dangerous and and Precisely because of this, I mean, where do you draw the line between, you know, like a vociferous but ultimately healthy democratic conversation and instead a full-on whatever harassment, which is something, I mean, very different. So, I mean, from my understanding, one could be sent to jail up to two years for participating in <laughs> the Twitter pylon, which sounds, I mean, very draconian, but, but it speaks to the fear of, of the establishment vis-a-vis -vis social media. Um, they don't like, they are not used. They are not used to people actually criticizing them sovereignly and attacking them. And what is more, not criticizing them individually, which they can perhaps deal with, but many, many people, like crowds, mm. they're not used to crowds targeting them. They really don't like that. Yeah, very few of them have like real world experience where they will have dealt with a hostile audience. 
because, I mean, I don't see very, very many politicians these days who would go out and, and speak in front of a crowd. And even then, if you're going out to campaign about something and speak about something, you're going to be greeted quite often. Like, you're going to be, at, like, say, like, Jeremy Corbyn, I don't know, this is a bad example because mm-hmm. he's a lot of, he's, mm-hmm. I'd say he's a better public speaker and more used to being confronted than, than most, but... um he at least uh if he goes out to say speak at like a pro-palestine rally for example or uh something like that he's unlikely to be confronted by a hostile Mm -hmm. crowd so i think what you're saying is right and then the politicians have this i think this is probably the root of the of the problem is that they have this habit to then believe that it's all as we were talking about earlier just like trolls or right-wing nutcases or you know the the woke mob coming after them or you know whatever side you happen to or they happen to be on and then for me the thing that gets really difficult to to define to figure out is like how many of these people are real like do you buy the dead internet theory you know the the, the, the like at least 50 percent, 60 percent plus of the accounts online are all fake like how how much of the the pylons and and these things do you think are actually real people i think they're they are real people like obviously there's bots there's fake accounts but mostly fake accounts ultimately are real people right in the sense that it's people it's people who have multiple accounts uh whatever professors who uh, don't want to blemish their academic reputation i mean i see economists doing that all the time like you know or, or you get a feel for that that is the case. Um, I mean, it's still real people. Uh, the problem often is people who are, especially the more militant ones and the ones that are more outspoken, are often very vocal minorities. So sometimes the mistake is thinking that these people are representative of more widespread feelings. For example, I mean, say anti-vaxxers that has gotten so much attention and are so vocal on social media of all sorts. So if you basically consider Facebook or Twitter as a reliable indication of public sentiment, you think that the majority of the population is against vaccines, which is not at all the case. I mean, the anti-vax community is a relatively small community around 20% of people in Western countries support that, but it is an extremely militant community. Um, But then also more majoritarian opinions will always have a kind of vanguard to them. That is a smaller group of people that is far more mobilized, far more cohesive, far more determined. And that is what is manifested in the form of, of the online mob. Now, for me, you know, for many, the very existence of mobs or crowds of any kind is something dangerous, something negative. And obviously, uh, it's sometimes they're not nice crowds. Crowds can be quite bad and actually can be contagious in terms of following by example. Mm. Uh, People get so... Uh, heated that they say things they wouldn't perhaps say if they were by themselves. They get even more disinhibition than social media disinhibition alone would allow for. But, you know, that's politics. I mean, politics is conflict. It's conflict of idea. I'm very, actually, I'm much more worried 
about liberal attempts to kind of sanitize social media conversations, uh, liberals in, in a European sense, like centrist attempts to kind of sanitize social media conversations, uh, uh, turning them into whatever buttoned up uh, conversations where I say my thing, uh, no, uh, Mr. Bourgeois one says something, Mr. Bourgeois two, and everyone is basically super elegant and, uh, and, and whatever, because that is not how society operates and that is not how democracy operates. We want ordinary people to participate in politics. And that is actually the, the great thing about social media, because it is the first time in history that when ordinary people are writing their thoughts in public, mm. not only speaking in public, they are writing in public, often with spelling mistakes, often with very strange uh, sentence construction, uh, but it is beautiful in and of itself, I think, like the fact that ordinary people now, many of them are kind of expressing themselves on social media. For how much often the content may not be one that, that is agreeable or even beyond that, but it is potentially something democratic, something that actually enriches our democracy. Mm. I hadn't quite thought about it like that. That's a really, really beautiful way of, of thinking about it. I mean, I've, I'm not like, I, I'm very much like a, I probably, yeah, I put myself in the category of like a free speech absolutist. Like, I just, I think people should be like, short of like literally inciting, like, we're going to like get him, you know, like, like go beat this guy up. Like, aside from like literally inciting violence, I'm I'm very much a fan of letting people say what they want. But that's, that's a really interesting way of thinking about it is that, you know, perhaps that like, like the chattering classes or, or however you want to define them or have never been exposed to the fact that, you know, the whole world, like everyone has some crazy opinion somewhere about something, you know, like I guarantee almost everyone has an out of the norm opinion about something. And mm -hmm. like, maybe this is like, maybe we're just not used to being confronted with like the madness of each other. And that's where that <laughs> desire to shut it down comes from. And if you use YouTube, you start from a kind of extravagant opinion you have and then suddenly you, whatever, what UFOs, do they exist? And then suddenly you go down the rabbit hole, all the way down, right? Until you re-emerge as an alt-right yeah. <laughs> supporter or something like oh. that. No, you come out uh, thinking space is fake, man. Like you, <laughs> yeah. you end up on those Hollow uh, Earth videos. <laughs> I mean, Hannah Arendt, uh, the political philosopher, she had this uh, line where she said that society survival is premise on hypocrisy. <laughs> That's great. In the sense that if we constantly said everything we thought about other people, like, society would turn into kind of civil war, <laughs> even our families or everything. I mean, there are things that we keep for ourselves uh, because it is not kind or it is not necessary um, ultimately living with other people also entails in a way kind of keeping things for yourself. So, I mean, that is why also total transparency is not good necessarily because people need to have their interiority and they need to decide what they want to, to exteriorize, what is part of the internal thinking that they, what they want to express. 
Um, otherwise, uh, yeah, people wouldn't even be able to, to consider things for themselves and perhaps at some point have an extravagant opinion and then whatever, also confronted with the reality and decided they don't want to have this opinion. So there is a bit of that. And there is also a bit, you know, all the cancel culture, uh, big, like, uh, how would you say, um, obsession, right, of uh, right-wing commentators and some uh, neoliberal commentators who are now even setting up universities because they're saying that social justice warriors are censoring them. I mean, it is not true, yet sometimes there is a bit of a tendency to uh, single out people for punctual opinions. There is a certain moralism, a certain online moralism or puritanism which is sometimes, I mean, I don't think it is dangerous for freedom of expression or anything. Sometimes it's a bit fastidious in a sense. It's, um, yeah, it's not something that militates in favor of having kind of open conversations and having critical thought and also kind of allowing people to have heretical ideas because sometimes heresies are become the new orthodoxy because perhaps they do have, they do make sense of them. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the, that that sort of cancel the at least in America, I think w what happens is there are there are examples where where like I I mean I spoke to to Dr. Brett Weinstein um, mm -hmm. on this show um, a while back and and like what happened to him was horrifying and it was like a it was it's like a, an incident where that sort of madness of the internet has spilled over into the real world and and mm -hmm. I think that's and then for what happens is it's very easy for those crowds to then appear and things to sort of run out of control and then professors who have for decades perhaps in a lot of cases been just you know they've they've been able to sort of have discussions about controversial topics within their own within their classroom and and have that just you know that that was that's what university was for essentially in in some ways i think and and that then when that has spilled over and the internet has realized that that's what's happened then people get very crazy and that sort of puritanism comes out and and i, th I think mm -hmm. that's 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 probably what what ends up up happening um so you talked there that that that, that hannah aaron quote i i am gonna have to go and, and find that as well that sounds horrifying <laughs> as well it's it's very very real um you know society like needs hypocrisy um and and maybe and like because if we were all exposed to all the things we thought all the time society would collapse and it's like is that what we're seeing now with the internet like is yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there is, there is so much animosity going on online. There is, I mean, I think there is this polarity, especially when it comes to micro-celebrities, where either someone becomes a kind of cult figure and becomes someone who attracts a fandom base. But at that point, doesn't even question the micro-celebrity anymore because it's like questioning whatever uh, your favorite uh, reggaeton, uh, rapper or something, I mean, it makes no sense. You just admire that person, you love that person. It's really about kind of loving or, or hating. Like conversely, with, with hating people, there are uh, sympathizers and antipathizers. And sometimes people have more antipathizers than they have sympathizers. 
And there is also like an element of um, spite sometimes or envy um, where, which is a sort of side product of all this constant self-promotion and exposure that people are compelled to do, which often positions people who are not able actually to enjoy that lifestyle or to have that success in a position where they feel almost victimized by the people who instead parade their success. So it gets sometimes quite out of control because of this distance. Because there are things that people would never say to someone straight in the face of the person if they were in the same room. Also because if you do that in physical life, sometimes it can end up with blows. <laughs> Yeah. especially in Britain on Friday night. <laughs> uh, it, it's not like in Italy. In Italy, we have more uh, complex interactions. It start like insulting all the family the way down to your uh, ancestors. And, and then perhaps uh, there are some punches are blown. Um, yeah, but why it, with the Italians distance, have the hands out long before there's exactly, any punches. Like, right? like, yeah. no. <laughs> It's more, uh, it's, it's more of a rhetorical violence, and then it's better, less, less wounds, <laughs> le less people hospitalized. <laughs> oh. and, but then there is uh, instead this, uh, what would you say? I mean, when you're online, instead there is this distance that make people feel safe and comfortable to say things against anyone. But those things stick, I mean, they, because they're not just words. Words are things, words ultimately are material. Right? They get crystallized in people's brains, in people's memories. And then perhaps you end up meeting that person. So it can make for a very uh, divisive uh, trend. And throughout my research, looking at election campaigns, you know, heard of brothers and sisters, uh, not speaking to one another anymore because they saw on Facebook that someone was supporting a candidate and the other one was supporting another candidate and that they were completely dissing people who were for the other position. So is this really mixing of the private and the public? Right? The, the sentence can be quite explosive. Mm. What do you think is causing that that sort of because I, I and maybe 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 I'm just young and naive, and this has always been the way. But I don't know. I feel like people get a lot angrier at each other for their personal opinions now. Where before, I don't know. Maybe it's just because we're like we've discussed, we're all more exposed to you know the extremes of whatever side of whatever issue it is. But why do you think it is that people get so angry at each other for what? maybe who they voted for or because I, I don't know I feel like that wasn't always the, the way I, I don't, maybe maybe you can speak a little bit to that maybe because I mean we are touchers babies or blur, uh, not touchers children or blurs babies so I mean people like around our age have been brought up during time that was called economically the great moderation because of low inflation rates low interest rates uh, and a semblance of economic stability and that went with a political moderation because there was a strong consensus the so-called washington consensus on you know, free trade free enterprise uh, everyone is going to get rich you can get a house you can get credit you can get your mortgage why should you care about politics why should you divide about political things when you should sort out your problems individually 
with your job, your investments, and so on and so forth. But it was a parenthesis in history. There was a digression. <laughs> Actually, normal history has been about almost tribal uh, divisions in society, a lot of hate in society, a lot of conflict in society. Uh, I think, as Mao Zedong put it, uh, uh, paraphrasing uh, von Clausewitz, that politics is the uh, continuation of war by other means. Hmm. Like hmm. It's a sort of mostly peaceful, in a sense of not overtly violent, civil war that is going on among different interests in society. Unfortunately, it is hard for it not to be that way because society is divided materially mm. around different interests. Obviously, everyone wants to live in a peaceful society, doesn't want that to escalate into uh, violence, into terrorism, and so on and so forth. Um, but at the same time, depriving politics of the element of conflict and antagonism only engenders distrust in politics. Only makes politics a politics of experts, a politics where other people decide for you. Mm -hmm. So, in a way, I think we need to cope with that. We need to find ways in which conflict can be as civil as possible, with some excesses that are always going to, to happen, but in a way, kind of tolerate uh, the ones that are possible to tolerate. And at the same time, use that energy to actually. Uh, produce ideas, policies that are the best ones for society. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, because we, we live in a in an era when when people have never been more passionate about things, but never more willing to talk to each other about it. It's it's amazing. Um, and I, like I mean, this is vaguely what I'm attempting to do with this show is to like try and yeah talk to to people about every, like from all different angles of every single issue I can find. Like I've had I've been lucky enough to have everyone from people who are like just literal self-confessed communists all the way to people who were at the march on um january 6th um, they didn't they weren't inside the capital or they would be in jail but um, they were they were there at the march um so so it's it's i'm yeah it's a hope i i i'm hopeful that that talking to each other is going to be the the way forward in in the world but i i uh Maybe that's naive, but we'll see how it plays out. Uh, yeah, but ultimately, you know, what some people don't want to accept is that we live in the same world. So, uh, I mean, we are part of the same society. We live in the same historical time. And actually for how ideas may seem opposite, they are responses to the same problems because there is a shared experience. Even with a person who is most uh, distant from me, in values, in beliefs, and so on and so forth. Ultimately, we are immersed in the same social condition. Mm, yeah, yeah, we're, we're all living the same world. And like, ultimately, like, aside from a few really crazy people, I think what most people want is uh, the best for themselves and their family. And, mm -hmm. and you know, they're, they're not out to cause harm to anyone else. And they're mm -hmm. not actively wishing for, you know, bad things to happen to other people. Like, they just want peace and prosperity i think that's what we're most of us anyway are, are after <laughs> um, but to to bring things, you to find it. <laughs> yeah yeah 
Um, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, you look too long at Twitter and you wouldn't think that, but I think that's what most of us want. Um, but to like sort of bring this like back to you, to GameStop and to the idea of, of neoliberalism. So, um, we the yeah the title of the of of on the podcast was like the end of neoliberalism and i i wanted to ask if you think that we are witnessing the the sort of the death throes of of this ideology whether um things like the gamestop saga where we were witnessing um a bunch of people on the internet um potentially well, they did, like, at least temporarily in January. And, you know, the, it seems like they're still having an effect because, well, the DOJ just launched a, a, an investigation into a criminal investigation into to fraudulent uh, practices by hedge funds and short selling. Um, there's there's more uh, lawsuits being filed. Uh, Citadel and Robinhood uh, are going to court um, with a class action suit. Like there's 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 a lot of of big things happening that that seem to me to be exposing to the wider public the sheer level of yeah in my mind at least fraud that's involved in in the financial world and and just how like a predator predatory it is and how based in absolutely nothing it, it all is um like is is are we witnessing like the death throes of of this system or do, or is it going to find a way to to bounce back I mean, I think the system is rotten more than it looks. And we are not really fully realizing the scale of the COVID-19 crisis and how it has hit economic fundamentals. Mm. I mean, it's enough to look at profit rates and interest rates. I mean, interest rates have not been this low, I mean, in historical memory. And obviously, it's a very bad sign for capitalism that they need to be kept this low because it is not really good for capital interest rates being this low. And especially when they are lower than inflation, it means that people with savings, people with capital, that the capital is being eroded. Right? If it doesn't find profitable avenues for investment, it is a system and that can thrive only if it grows. It cannot be steady because otherwise it cannot make a profit and therefore it cannot reward the investors. But the reality now looks, at least in the West, that we are heading for a time of very, very low growth rates because in a way the space is saturated, the economy is saturated many of the revolutionary inventions that really changed productivity and made our lives better are in the past. Uh, washing machines, uh, electricity, uh, transportation, things that really changed our lives actually more than, than the internet. So I'm not saying that this is the end of history, like that we are just going to be in this eternal stagnation, but now we are in a prone stagnation we are not really seeing any way out of this. I think Bidenomics was interesting as an attempt to try to shake up the system. More public investment that has been 
the aspect that has been uh, where the retreat of the state has been most evident at that neoliberalism, which is why in the US everything is rusty, mm. all the mass transit, right? because it comes from the 70s. Right? Yeah. Well, I mean, we have the same union. problem here in Britain, really, um, <laughs> in a lot of, in a lot yeah. of cases. Uh, well, completely all, all over all over Europe. Perhaps in the US is more uh, most evident. Mm. Um, yet you also see there was these these tweets about whatever high speed trains in China and California. Like 2010, California and China say, "I'm going to do high speed rail," and and then while China does it because it has a centralized government and authoritarian government, in the US there are all these blocks. All these things are basically making it impossible for actually the system to reform itself. Um, so there is this stagnation uh, with central banks pumping more money and yet more money, yet not really reviving the economy. And it's uh, a situation that is really dangerous also because it's not just stagnation. For many people, it's actually decline. Mm. It's downward mobility. I mean... As an Italian, uh, Italy has, has gotten there first, unfortunately, already since basically the year 2000 has been declining, decline, decline. And guess what? People don't like the world mobility. Also, it's not something they're used to. They are used always of having better conditions than their parents. And for the long time, that was the case. Now, even life expectancy is starting to drop. Yeah. So that is a very worrying... Uh, uh, predicament, uh, perhaps in the near future, uh, more state interventionism and some technological breakthroughs, perhaps at some point uh, in nuclear fusion, may provide a new technological edge and provide new avenues for investment. Yet in the short to medium term, we are caught in these uh, shallows where um, society is stuck somehow. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really good diagnosis, actually. And I, so I can't remember what the exact term is, but Eric Weinstein talks about this a lot. And he, he says that there seems to be something that is preventing the the revolutionaries, essentially, like a, not literally like the revolutionaries, but the people who would have like changed industries, changed companies, changed like systems from from rising beyond a certain level because they rock the boat too much. Mm-hmm. Um, like, what do you think it is that's 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 stopping us from like, like shaking ourselves free of that stagnation? Because it's it's something that I, I speak to so many people who are totally aware of all of the things that we're talking about, right? That are, are, are completely, like, brilliantly versed in it. They have seen it. They have studied it. And, and, and if you speak to anyone on the street about this, I don't think they would disagree with you at all. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe they would dispute a few points, but I think they would largely say, yeah, you know, we're in a period of decline. Things are getting worse. Um, mm-hmm. uh, what do you think it is that's stopping action basically and do you see GameStop as a way that we can uh, like a, a model for which we can try and do something because it's it's a yeah a very sort of honest and focused and and quite a beautiful community actually there's some some really mm-hmm. like heartfelt things being said in there and really like people post in there about you know I'm about how they 
like different events in their lives and how they're like holding on because they think this this movement is going to change the world for their their child that has just been born or for like you know they want the their grandfather told them to hold mm-hmm. for a better world you know like do you think that there's where where would you look for hope in you know re-energizing the people to change the change the system yes i mean we desperately need hope uh, but a hope that needs to be rooted in rootless realism as there was an intense were already moments of hope especially for people like me on the left as there were a lot of protest movements new parties new candidates and people were enthused for many it was really the first time that they, they could believe in something like the power of belief, the power of faith. Um, though much of that then ultimately was spoiled, ultimately turned into disappointment, because guess what? People realized that the system is more well defended mm-hmm. than you would hope, right? Is very stable. It is incredibly, incredibly strong and impermeable to a lot of popular demands going on. Especially if popular movements are not organized and we really lack a culture of organization that, I mean, at least my parents uh, and generation of, of, of our parents, people coming before us had, because I mean, the simple thing of being in a meeting and you have a problem, you have a meeting. Now, even the basic literacy of being in the meeting, putting things together is something that many people lack. Right? Also because meetings are often terribly boring. <laughs> especially at the time of the low political activity, they are monopolized by the habitué, the habitué of meetings. The presentialists were always there and disrupt things often. So I think is the characteristic of movements or mobilizations of crowds, but it also lies in mechanisms through which you can chip in money, you can chip in time, you, you can throw in resources, you can contribute things without having always to be mobilized 100% because that is not sustainable. You need ways for people who don't have time to still contribute something. And that is ultimately what organizations have always done. Thinking about trade unions and thinking about cultural associations, I mean, even a religion association, you know, political parties, they were the heroes of modernity because they were basically machines that brought many individuals together and combined their power, their forces, their energy, their strength. We are still trying to figure out what organization would look like in the 21st century. And mm. there have been some attempts, there's been some better versions, there's been some prototypes. Uh, but we are still far from uh, uh, finding the actual template to use in the future. And then we also need like optimism. And I mean, for example, speaking with, with my father, who is 78, I mean, he, if he looks back at his life, he sees this period as a period of enormous pessimism. Obviously, pessimism is not going to lead you anywhere but to fatalism, to nihilism, to retreat, to depression. So we also need a a bold vision, perhaps not like the ideology, the the totalizing ideologies of the past that promised uh, a lofty future, 
but really a commitment a design of what we are going to construct the kind of society the, the good society you know the better society that we want to build for ourselves mm. without those two components without vision and organization um, you can have explosions of activity you can have insurgencies and that is all good i mean it's better than nothing uh, but then the risk is that it is occasional it is uh, short events that do not add up to systemic change ultimately to a real transformation in a way society operates mm. well hopefully the internet is providing some early yeah as you said beta tests for how this might work in the future i don't know like things like yeah, Jeremy Corbyn's movement in in Britain, the the Bernie Sanders uh, movement in in America is like is is showing us that like things can be organized online, and I, I'd say we've probably we we've got we've like we've we're past like minimum or peak disorganization, if that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> so fingers crossed. Um, but anyway, I unfortunately I have to 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 wrap things up here um, as I have another podcast to record in like ten minutes. <laughs> for for tomorrow actually so if anyone's tuning in uh there will be one out tomorrow um so yeah i i really want to thank you for for your time um it's been been really really interesting like i've definitely had i learned learned some things and uh yeah there's some stuff i'm gonna have to look I up took notes yes i, I did was... i always take notes <laughs> it's useful to refer back to then later on um but is there anything you want to like point people towards before we finish up here it was a pleasure I hope people enjoy this. And I'm looking forward to discussing with you again. Yeah, yeah, I'll definitely have you back. Yeah. And maybe, maybe, maybe next year I will get to have some sort of early example of I, I'm planning. Um, I keep calling it the big review of Britain. I basically want to get like as many smart people as I can find in a room and ask them like how we fix the system. <laughs> so I, it's it's difficult to figure out how I'm going to organize that at the minute with the, all the restrictions but as soon as it's possible again i will be trying to do that so yeah i'll be in touch <laughs> but yeah thanks very Look much um it's been a pleasure to talk cheers bye bye <laughs>